Welcome into the 11 Dubcast presented by the Dry Goods Store at 11warriors.com. I am merely Bo Bishop, Johnny Ginter on the other end. We have, all right, so I'll, I'll put this up to you. We've got like a messy, uh, not a whole lot of fun story to discuss, and then we've got some frivolous nonsense. Do you want to start with frivolous nonsense or do you want to start with the heavy stuff? Always start with the heavy stuff, move on to the sweet okay. stuff afterward. You got you to have your meat take, before you eat your pudding. So Take the tough stuff. For, so this was this is something that I've wrestled with, with on the radio show I do with James Laurinaitis uh, on the fan, and it is the, a simple question of how do we tackle this, um, what's become a national political story with Jim Jordan? Um, and I, I don't have an answer for it. Um, by now, if you're listening to this, you likely know the facts that seven former Ohio State wrestlers have accused uh, Jordan of of knowing of widespread sexual misconduct by a doctor at Ohio State, the doctor who's been dead for you know a dozen years, um, and and this is a story that has all of the salacious things that that turn into stories that occupy a month of time uh, or better. And um, I I don't at this point it's hard for me to unpack it too much, John, because I. I, what I know, I mean, so I don't really know where to go with it because it's, it is an enormous story, but the doctor is dead. Strauss is dead. And so there's not, I can't question him. I can't, it's, it's, it's seven wrestlers and maybe more will come out. And I mean, one of them is the first UFC champion of all time. Mark Coleman, one of the great wrestlers in the history, one of the great MMA fighters. I mean, this guy is a star, you know? And, and so um, and, and the rest of these guys, are, they're all, you know, Ohio State wrestlers. And you say you, you listen to what they have to say and you believe that I certainly believe what they say. Um, but but then there's this Jordan part of it. Right. And that's where it has just run wild is this Jordan part of it. And, and I don't know. I don't know if he's the pound of flesh on this. I don't know that he is. But I think the pound of flesh that deserves to be got if these allegations are true and everything that I'm hearing leads me to believe that they are is dead. So I don't, I really don't know how this thing's going to play out. And it's a really hard talk for me on radio. We spent a segment talking about it when it first broke. And then I haven't really known where to go with it. Um, I'm curious from your vantage point as, as this thing's starting to unravel where you sit with it. I think, I mean, it's difficult for all the reasons that you said, because there's still, in my opinion, I think there's still a lot to come out. I think it's also difficult because of the people who are involved. I mean, this is a really incendiary topic and a lot of people are throwing bombs left and right. Um, So you don't like, I think anyone who has a real firm stance on this, when there's still a lot of this to go, I think they're kind of fooling themselves a little bit because there's so much more that can come out. And, you know, when you think of some of the other scandals involved with college athletics you know to this level like it's not something that was resolved in a week or two like this is something oh, that would take months and years in so, the case of penn state and michigan right, state i mean exactly for years exactly yeah. and and so there there are all kinds of things that could happen between now and two or three months from now what bothers me a little bit i guess in terms of how the narrative has been going and how the story has been progressing is that so much of this is going to be tied into uh the election in November, because Jim Jordan's up for re-election. And yeah. I am bothered, I guess, by the idea that the facts and the truth of all of this is going to be obscured by the fact that so many people are going to be concentrating on the person of Jim Jordan and will this hurt his re-election chances. And the story's bigger than that. It's, it's, it's not about him necessarily. Yes. I mean, it, he's involved in it. And if he did things that were wrong, he deserves, like, he needs to answer for those things. 
Um, but it's not just about him. And I think that's unfortunately where that's going to be completely laser focused on going forward just because of the timeline of everything. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm reading these comments. I'm reading the comments from the most recent stuff. This from uh, a couple of days ago in the Washington Post, David Range, who wrestled for Ohio State in the late 80s. He was the seventh former Ohio State wrestler that came forward. He came forward over the weekend. And he said that he believes, you know, uh, Jim Jordan knew about the inappropriate behavior. And his quote says, Jordan definitely knew about these things that were happening. Yes, most definitely. It was there. He knew about it because it was an everyday occurrence. Um, there, there's, there's more about this. Uh, Jordan has comments um, about it. Um, but you're right that, you know, the, the, the hard part about this is, look, it's, is, is the part you mentioned, it's an election year. We live in a toxic political time right now where um, the truth is skewed on a daily basis. However, and, and what's amazing is, is we now argue what's fact and not. Um, you know, <laughs> right. there was a time where there was a fact and we, and we said, okay, this is a fact, but now we argue facts. I mean, that's how absurd that it's gotten in our country. And, and this story, look, I, everything that I've seen on this, and I know that there is a lot more to come. I think that's important for people who are listening right now to remember that there is a lot more to come in this in much more detail. Um, what I am privy to, which is nothing spectacular is that is as based on what I am privy to, I believe that some of that a lot that this stuff happened. I believe um, that that some people at Ohio State certainly knew about it and covered it up, and it, that doesn't surprise me because that's how big time athletics works, is to cover these type of things up. Um, I think you know what Jim the Jim Jordan part of it, from what I know, the Jim Jordan part is a relatively small part in the big scheme of what happened at Ohio State, but he's the he seems to be the target for the flesh that needs to be got. Um, yeah. And if he knew, and he, he, this was an assistant wrestling coach, you know, it, it, I guess if, if you're looking for an analogy, if I understand this the way that I think I do, and I admit that I don't have a full grasp of it, but, it, but from the best that I, the best analogy I can come up with is he's kind of, you know, the Mike McQuarrie in this, if mm -hmm. you want to use the Penn state analogy, where he's the assistant coach that saw some stuff and ran it up sure. the table and, you know, and that, that was it. I, you know, I, is that, but is that a decent, is that fair? I don't know. Well, I guess what I would say though, because my, did you read the, the Rob Aller piece about this? I did. Yeah. And that's, yeah. and so here's my point. Like this is a systemic thing where I think a lot of people, I mean. But even in real quick on that, even in the yeah, Aller piece, Aller's piece did not say that this happened to him. Sure. I mean, it didn't happen to him. You know, he said that it was uncomfortable and you, you know, that type of stuff, but it wasn't like, I guess it depends on how it's defined. And that's when you say there's more stuff out there and, and you and I are aware that there's other things, you know, when, when that stuff comes out and the detail is out, I think you'll have a better understanding of it. Right. Because but right I, I now, even in Rob's piece, there's not enough in Rob's piece to where Jim Jordan has to be hung. No, but my point is, is that was as far as Rob, you know, Aller's piece goes is that, you know, he was talking about how people were like uncomfortable and things like that, but that's yeah. kind of why to me, this is such a difficult uh, story and conversation for people to have because a lot of this exists within the realm of kind of like winks and nods and jokes and yeah. things that aren't really jokes and, and issues that people have had such a hard time discussing, which I think, you know, we as a society need to be better at having those types of discussions, but especially in athletics uh, setting, you know, these are the types of things that sometimes happen and people don't want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. And it's, you know, like, 
like unmanly, unmasculine to complain about this kind of stuff. And to me, this is a, a much larger issue uh, than like, well, you know, some guy was a creep. Well, yeah, but why couldn't we talk about it? If somebody was uncomfortable or somebody was like harassed or like, you know, inappropriately touched, why did we not have the means to allow somebody to discuss that and to report that? Because like, again, it's, it's terrible that if somebody felt bad when they, they talked to a coach about it and then the coach did nothing, like that's a horrible thing. But if this went on for years because nobody was willing to talk about it to me, that's, that's so much worse. And you know, this goes across hundreds of quick on that for a long time for a very long time i think one quick thing on that is um we have to put you have to try to put yourself in 20 years ago at the earliest at the most recent 20 years ago's culture i mean you didn't talk about stuff like this yeah you know i mean this stuff was you buried this deep in your soul right you know you weren't you didn't talk about that there was no me too right that didn't exist you know you if something like this happened you you were shamed and you yeah. were told to shut up and deal with it and be a man. I mean, you weren't told, especially the way that this allegedly went down. I mean, like you would no 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 college kid is going to come to the forefront of this in 1984. Yeah, expose themselves to that? Of course not. No, no, it's a totally different world. And and in those and in those days, I mean, that's a long time ago. But even as recently as 15 years ago, there was no voice for athletes. They didn't have social media pages. They couldn't go directly to people. I mean, it, it's so much easier now, and it's still hard. It's still really hard to decide to do stuff, to decide to come forward if you feel like you've been violated. It's still right. really hard to do that, but it's a thousand times easier now than it was even 15 years ago, let alone 30 years ago. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm saying. Like that to me, like that's if there's an indication to me that there's something to this, it's the fact that I know, like I, like again, you know. I, even as a 30, what I'm a 33 year old man. Like I can remember what it was like in, you know, the, the nineties, right. The mid nineties, early two thousand. there, that wasn't an app. There wasn't an apparatus for talking no. about this stuff. And I just can't imagine like people talk about why, you know, why wasn't this brought up earlier? It's like, cause nobody did. <laughs> cause it, yeah, it you didn't talk side, about this. It was socially like unacceptable to talk about any of that's this. Right. You were shamed. The victim was so shamed. Hard. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And that's what yeah, makes this the, so hard. And the thing that sucks about it is the doctor's dead. Right. And has been for a long time. Right. And so, you know, when you come to get retribution, I mean, you get retribution if this is proven to be true. And I think Ohio State's silence on this is speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. Um, but but if this is true, Ohio State will write a big fat check to a bunch of guys who yeah. were involved. That's how this will go. I mean, there will be a big penalty for them for this. But I don't know how you go about you know, if you think about from an NCAA point or from a fine standpoint, I don't even know how you, how do you do this when the guy's dead and has been for so long? I mean, yeah. I, I don't even know how this type of thing would be tried or how the, a guilt would be associated or how a ruling would be handed down. I mean, I, I'm not a, obviously clearly not an attorney. Um, and then Jordan's in the middle of it and it's an election year. So it's a, I mean, this is a powder keg and it's, it's a, as I think you probably, if you're listening to this, you can tell, I mean, it's a, I think we've done about as well as you can do, but it's a tough talk because I don't, there's two, there's not at this point, I don't think John, there's enough information to come out and, and really say affirmatively one way or another, what, you know, I mean, on, based on the information that's out there now, you have seven wrestlers who say 
that this happened and that Jordan knew. And that the part that's being emphasized in this is Jordan knew. Well, let's remember this is an assistant wrestling coach. That's he wasn't the head of the of the he wasn't the head coach, wasn't the athletic director, he was an assistant wrestling coach. What access did he have? What did he know? I think stuff will come out that that would prove what he knows. And when that happens, this will be a different story. But for right now, it's a tricky talk. It is. Well, and I think, you know, I'm glad we're having this talk. I know it's difficult, but I'm glad that it's it's at least something that we are talking about. Because it is, yeah, it's not something that, even if it happened 30 years in the past, to me, this is one of those things that I feel like we just as – as people who give a crap about college sports or any kind of sports, you have to have these types of conversations. There are people who are in vulnerable positions because they are athletes or because they don't feel that they can speak out. And if we don't have these types of conversations, those people will never feel confident enough to say, this is wrong. This is a bad thing that's happening because that's what allowed this type of abuse to happen in the first place. People not feeling that they had a voice. And I don't, I'm not going to accuse Jim Jordan of anything because I don't know if he did anything. I don't really know the whole situation around it. There's a lot of, like he said, he said a lot of back and forth, but to me, again, I, I am glad that this is something that is at least being discussed because I think it's stupid to pretend like it can't happen at Ohio state or it can't happen at our favorite school or something like that. Or even whether, you know, like where our kids are, are, you know, yeah. doing their use like soccer leagues or baseball leagues or whatever it can happen anywhere when people yeah. feel that they don't have the ability to voice their concerns. And I'm glad that we're at least talking about this stuff, even if we don't, you know, have concrete conclusions yet. And we probably won't have them for a long time. No, no. I think it's important when you said at the top that, I mean, you know, when you think about Nasser and you think about Sandusky, those were decades in some cases or many, many right. years in some cases before, you know, any, anything was known. Um, so, I mean, the one thing about this though, is the way that this news cycle works, as you mentioned, because the reelection of, of Jordan that's upcoming quickly, um, yeah. we will be, they will almost force feed this in terms of some sort of adjudicating of this. Oh yeah. I mean, if, if, not, yeah. if not officially, certainly in the court of public opinion, this will be adjudicated very quickly, you know, because yeah. if, if, the, if he's, if he's viewed, I mean, this is just polit- politics and you're, you, this is your right in your wheelhouse. If he's viewed as an albatross, uh, the Republicans will drop him in a second because oh, yeah. they can't, it's too dicey. So they'll have him resign in a second. They'll do, I mean, so they're not going to, you can't, they're not going to monkey around with this. So I think we're going to have some resolution in terms of where Jordan's place in this stands. And again, folks, that's a, in my opinion, what I know now, that's a small piece of a rather large, large issue. He's a small piece of it for, you know, based on what we know at this point. Um, all right. So um, more on that to come as, as it shakes out. We'll, yeah, we'll continue to cover it the best we can uh, on the site and, and certainly on the cast and, and, and as the information comes. Let's go some, some frivolous stuff and have a little fun here. We'll have Ramsey coming on shortly. But um, we were doing, Dan wrote a great piece uh, for the site last week. Dan Hope did. I encourage you to read it. And we did the television show on the piece this week. And the the piece was um, most memorable finishes in uh, of the last, I think it was of the last 10 years. But what I did with it for the television show is I went from 2010 on. So there's all sorts of great finishes. There's Braxton Miller, you know, beating Wisconsin with the walk-off when they had Russell Wilson. Uh, there's the Tyvis Powell interception at Michigan. There is, uh, we had the Kenny Guyton come back against Purdue, which was cool to just, it was just fun to look at that old video again, because you haven't thought about it for a while. Um, So that was pretty cool. We had the 2016 um, uh, Michigan game. Certainly we had the two Penn state games in 17 and in 14. 
And then we had, of course, the the Alabama game. So these were, you know, the best finishes and of, of the aughts or the tens or whatever we want to call it. And um, I guess it would be the tens. Would that what would it be? The tens, two thousand tens, the teens. Yeah, it would be the teens, wouldn't it? Yeah, something like that. To the, I would yeah. say twenty tens. Yeah, twenty tens. Twenty tens. Okay, yeah. so the twenty tens. Right. It was the best. It was the best finishes of that, and it was a lot of fun. And a couple of things jumped out at me right away. Number one, I, you know, I'm in the bag for Braxton Miller, but I, it was just fun to watch him again. Like you, because I haven't thought about him in a long time. And if you look at the Michigan game uh, up there, 2013, he puts on a show for the ages. I mean, it's probably the quintessential Braxton performance, and he looks cool as hell. They're in those cocaine whites. They just look spectacular. Oh, yeah. That's just the most beautiful alternate uniform, you know, that Ohio State has is that yeah, that all white one that they it just is spectacular. So it just looks cool. And I, th- I thought about that and I thought, you know, that that win is kind of lessened because the next week they lose to Michigan State and it all goes to hell. And so that, that win is kind of lessened a little bit. And so as we're talking about it on the show today, I just kind of blurted this out. And it was the last game we did was the Alabama game from 2015 in the right. Sugar Bowl. And I said on the show, I said, I think that's the most important win in the history of Ohio State football. And I said it and I thought, oh, that's a lot of history. Let's try to unpack some of these. <laughs> and so we in our heads, we started like on the fly, like coming up with them. And what I what we come to find out, James Gregg, who also does the show, did a great job. And he brought up the 1968 Rose Bowl win over USC and uh, OJ Simpson, who was pretty much untackable at that time. And so he brought up that game and I said, well, that would be worthy. I mean, they won the national championship with that. Um, But I would, I kind of ended up by the time I kind of unpacked it a little bit, I felt pretty okay with it that, that I think it can be one of, I mean, I, I hate doing that's the greatest or whatever, but it would certainly be on a list of most important wins in the history of Ohio state. If you think about the situation that they were in with Cardell, if you think about the situation of playing down there, no one ever beats Bama down there, nine and a half point underdogs down two, two and a half score, three scores in the what second quarter um, backed up deep and they still pull it all off. And to beat Bama down there, like I remember being down there and there was a shock for the Bammers, the Alabama, like they couldn't wrap their heads around it. None of us could. Oh, it wasn't uh, that just they the did Alabama that. fans that were shocked. It was SEC in general. College football, right? Yeah, it was college football because no, yeah. no, no third string quarterback was beating Bama in in the South. I mean, that just wasn't happening, right? Um, and then so when I'll never forget when Zeke took off eighty five yards, and I just looked up at the screen and followed him. I was down on the field, and the Alabama people were in disbelief, like it didn't even believe what happened. So I I feel okay that that I think that that win can hold up uh, with among the greats in the history of the program. I think that's a reasonable take. Um, I, I would say, so if you're talking about like one of the greatest wins, I think it, it needs to have some kind of like historical impact. And I think, honestly, I think that that counts because that was sort of like destroying the SEC mystique a little bit. And yeah. if you think about it, like, I, I mean, obviously Alabama's had tons of success and they're whatever. They're going to continue to have tons of success. But I think that was more than just Ohio State and Alabama. I think that was like Big Ten versus the SEC. And it for was. a Big Ten team to go in, and do what they did to Alabama at the end of the first half and then end of the second half, that shocked a lot of people because yeah. the assumption, I think a lot of people are like casual college football fans um, who maybe just kind of expect the SEC to be great all the time. I think that was shocking to them. And I, I think that destroyed a lot of the mystique around the SEC. I think that was great for college football. And I honestly, the Big Ten since then, has kind of experienced a little bit of a renaissance. Like since 2015, mm-hmm. 2016, Big Ten has gotten a lot better. 
and to the point where they're maybe the best you know conference in the nation. So I think that's a big one. The only one that I would add uh, to that that I didn't hear was in it was still in 1968, but I think it's the we couldn't because we couldn't go for three game uh, where Ohio State beat Michigan. I think it was like 50 to 14. And, mm-hmm. and Woody Hayes, you know, just piled it on. And then, of course, the next yeah. year, you've got a defeat at the hands of Michigan, which really, you know, kicks off the 10-year war. But to me, it was, if you're talking about, because like, Ohio State Bo. war. Yeah. Because that if, game led to Bo. Yeah. Yeah. That's you what add that to it. Because it, it had such a huge impact on the history yeah. and the culture. I think that was, I think that that game was a really big one. Um, yeah, because, because the other Ohio, a lot of the other Ohio State-Michigan wins you know, Ohio State would go on to lose down the road. Yeah, so yeah they'd lose they the bowl game or whatever. There in, you know, in terms of the importance of the program, you know, like the one I mentioned with Braxton, the great game where Tyvis has the interception, that, you know, you lose the next week to Michigan State. 2016 is one of the great finishes, dramatic finishes of all time. You get drilled by Clemson uh, in the playoffs. 2000, uh, 2006, game of the century, unbelievable game. But because you get drilled by Florida in the national championship game, I don't know if it holds up. Um, because of what happened after it. And the thing about Bama and the two games you met, the game you mentioned 68 and the game James mentioned in 68, the Rose Bowl. I mean, those were like, you know, Ohio State beat Bama and then like playing Oregon was a fate complete. Like that was, they right. were going to lose to Oregon. Not if they beat Bama, not down there. So I, I think that's why those ones kind of resonate a little bit. I don't know. It was a fun little topic. And we, I just kind of stumbled, we stumbled onto it. And um, I'm interested to I'm going to get Ramsey's take on when he joins us here momentarily, just to kind of think, you know, from a historical perspective, because I can't go. I don't know about the 40s and the 50s. I don't know anything about Snowball. I mean, I mean, I've seen it on the documentaries, but it's impossible for me to give a real feel for that. But I mean, if you go from the late 60s through, you get a pretty good feel about the history of the program. And I, and I think it does hold up. I, I, is it the best? I don't know. But I, I think it's certainly in a conversation for that. What would, um, you, what so, would, you, say, what would you say is the the biggest win or at least the most important win in the 90s gotta be rose bowl right well and that's valedictorian of summer school of course because it's (laughs) when i think of the 90s all i think and and it's nice i'm not dismissing the rose bowl but because you lost to michigan state that year yeah and so many other missed opportunities but what else do you have what else are you gonna put on there that's what i'm saying like if you if you start in 1968 and go all the way to 2008 17 yeah there just isn't, I don't know that there's, a mu- you know, one that, you know, what a bunch of idiots. How do we miss a national championship game against Miami? Oh, well, sure. Yeah. That's yeah. What a bunch of dopes. Well, yeah. Isn't that interesting how we, yeah. that totally slipped. We didn't think about that. <laughs> how did that that's slip? A huge, no, that's huge. That's, that's in the top two. I, that's, yeah, in the top that's, that's one. Yes. Yeah. Insurmountable so odds, absolutely. That's one, and that set the yeah. That's one. So I feel comfortable. The same okay, so weight as the Alabama Sugar Bowl. We all not mentioned that until now. That's hilarious. We didn't on the TV show either. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's I, crazy. So sixty-eight. I could go the two games in sixty-eight you mentioned, the O two game and the Bama game. I mean, I think those would be the four most important. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, all right. So Ramsey is going to join us coming up next. Before we do that, we want to encourage you to go to 11 Warriors Dry Goods, pick up your hats, T-shirts, all sorts. That's good stuff. So we encourage you to go do that at 11warriors.com at the Dry Goods store. And without further ado, we are joined by our good friend Ramsey. Let me just hit you with this right out of the gates, buddy. We stumbled on this today on the television show. And I we were doing – I'm sure you saw Dan's piece on the most more memorable finishes in Ohio State in the last you know 10 years or so. And um, there were a lot of fun things that came up with that, but I just kind of blurted, blurted this out on the show, w- watching the Alabama win again. And I just said on the show, um, 
you know, that that might be the most important win in Ohio State history. And as soon as I said it, I thought, oh, hell, what did I just say? I mean, we got a lot of history, right? I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. Like, are we sure that this isn't just hot take guy? And then I started thinking about it. I thought, no, I feel okay with it. I think it can be one of them. I don't, you know, what is it the most? I don't know. Um, but Johnny and I were just talking about it. And, and James on the show brought up 68 against USC in the Rose Bowl. And then uh, Johnny brought up the uh, the Michigan game in 68. They couldn't go for three game. And then the the other one that, you know, came up, obviously, was the 2002 National Championship game against Miami. Where do, how do you feel about Alabama, Ohio State, most important game in Ohio State history or one of them? Oh, I think it is. And by chopping it up into different eras, you're doing it correctly. I will say that I think it's hilarious that the guys were not born yet talking about the 68 team <laughs> winning, winning the Rose Bowl. Uh, I was negative six years old when that memory maker <laughs> happened. Um, the, I, would, I would add, you know, it's easy to find the ones that you just pointed out. I mean, obviously Miami in double overtime. The, the Alabama game in the Sugar Bowl, which was memorable. And, and don't ever forget, Alabama has not beaten Ohio State in 23 years now. It's a huge drought. <laughs> no one talks about it. It's a uh, long drought. Yeah. The, the <laughs> underrated big win for Ohio State comes after the tie against Michigan in 73, which you know, they made that BTN documentary tiebreaker mm-hmm. about. It was this huge uh, deal with the Big Ten uh, athletic directors voting for Ohio State to go to Pasadena. Michigan still cries about it. Dennis Franklin's leg was broken. Ohio State goes out to the Rose Bowl and just beats the snot <laughs> out, of, out of the USC and wins the Rose Bowl. Um, had that been a close game or, you know, had they lost, who's to say how 73 would be viewed? But a, a, a big reason that that tiebreaker uh, episode is was forgotten until it was brought back uh, is because of what Ohio State did in Pasadena. That was a huge win going out and just and annihilating the Pac-12, the Pac-8 champions at the time. And also one of the great post, you know, incident press conferences of all time with Bo after that, that he will never forget what happened here I mean, he was just disgusted. The, just disgusted it's just so great and then, then they had then they had franklin out there you know in his jersey like showing that he could run remember that yeah like it was just that's just a crazy circumstance but um yeah i mean they're, they're it was they're fun and you the the alabama game i guess from a you know it, it's one that's dear to me because i was there and you know we I covered that team so intimately and and because of of my previous experience in the south and and the way that the Southern teams, specific, obviously the SEC teams, viewed the Northern teams, and and the fact that the last time we had them in a in a one that really mattered in the national championship game against Florida, you know, and and the LSU game, because of those things, there was this residual that that you just couldn't go down there and win, and nobody went to the South and beat Bama. I mean, you just didn't do it. You weren't going down there to do it. And then the fact that you know that it's also like you know, I'm talking about a. It should be a, be a 30 for 30 someday, the Cardale Jones story of those three games. Um, but the fact that it was, a you know, the, the quote, third string quarterback and the fact that they were down big early and it was in the Sugar Bowl, like those bammers were drooling in the second quarter. Like, we're going <laughs> to we're going to put this thing away. 21 and to six. It, it all flipped yeah. on them, man. It was crazy to witness. I mean, you almost you know, it almost defied logic that because nobody does that to them there. You know, you know I, I don't want to. I'm going to do everything I hate now and and make a comparison in sports to something that's real life. You know how you can look back at incidents in context after they've happened and start to diagnose like we could have seen this coming. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm going to invoke the challenger. How how the hasty management rushed the launch 
of the space shuttle in colder temperatures, the O-rings failed validation, and you can even see it take off what's going to happen. And then, uh, you know, this, this, the, the greatest tragedy, one yeah. of the greatest tragedies in space exploration happens on live television. Um, yeah. If you go back to – now, go from the Challenger to, to the first half of the Sugar Bowl. Um, <laughs> the, the, it, there, there's the second, the second touch Zeke Elliott got, and he ran off – it was one of those counter plays off to the left. It wasn't, it wasn't a memorable play, but it was for a nice gain. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a comment made during the replay – uh, you talk about the northern teams being slow. Ohio State has SEC speed. It's just kind of a throwaway line during mm-hmm. the beginning part of that drive. And the yardage starts piling up, and Alabama is seizing on Ohio State's mistakes. But if you if you stop and look when it's 21-6, to 6, don't look at the score and look at everything else. Yeah, That game is not close, man. And that's I think the, the, the Ohio State players, and they even said it after the game, that was all these indicators that are like, you know what? don't even worry about the score. Just keep doing this. Let's stop screwing up. And then they just rattled off 28 points in a row against a team that usually doesn't give up 20 points in a game. That's right. Yeah, no, it was, it it was totally sick. And the the thing is like, and I was talking about this a little bit earlier, is just the idea that to me, psychologically, like I think that broke a hold that the SEC had on just like, not just, you know, the big 10 or Ohio state, but just like college football in general, like Alabama is always going to be great. Nick Saban's going to win a trillion championships. He's going to be enshrined like in bronze everywhere. And they're going to dip him in carbonite and put him somewhere. But like, my point is, is that for Ohio state to get that win, I think that changes the attitude of how people kind of perceive themselves versus the SEC and other things like that. And like, you need that, you need that, that break. And I know how stupid that is. I hate the idea that like, you know, I, you're due for a win or this team has a hold on us, but that I, I almost feel like that's real psychologically. So to get that win and the way they did to me is like, that's a huge deal. That's a really, really big deal going forward for the next like five, 10 years. It's valid and it's cyclical. And I still remember uh, Jim Trestle talking about watching the big 10 playing bowl games leading up to the Fiesta Bowl in January, 2003, watching Wisconsin win and watching, watching the, the teams that they had just beaten uh, throughout the season win their postseason games and like, you know what, we we belong here. And that created momentum that lasted, I would say up until uh, the second play of the Glendale (laughs) uh, debacle (laughs) in in January 2007. And and I'd like to say, you know, everything repeats itself in college football, but that was a nice four or five. Ohio State was winning Fiesta Bowls every year after they beat Miami. Um, And if you look now, since, since that run where they, you know, the Cardale Jones 30 for 30, it has to happen at some point. They take yeah, out right. the, the three Heisman finalists. They do, they, they, they deal with a, a teammate uh, taking his own life. I mean, the, you, yeah. this, this you can't is, write it. This is a script that actually happened. Um, they went out to, to to Arizona again and put up an egg against Clemson. Yeah. Fired a bunch of coaches yeah. before they left the tarmac. And so you don't have that same momentum that can carry on because, unfortunately, it kind of fell apart there, right? Yeah, no, no, it did. And it's, yeah, yeah, no, it's the other thing, a couple of the things that jumped out at me just watching this, this film from the 2010s um, was, I I really believe that Braxton Miller, I don't know that he gets the due that he is due for what he was as a player um, because of the circumstances that happened around the end, clearly with the injury, but also because of, you know, his great win 
um, in 2013 at Michigan, where he's just spectacular. Like he and Rams, he, we were talking about this. Earlier, he looks so cool in those cocaine whites. Like he just, he just was like the coolest looking player of all time, and he's the most fun I've ever had watching Ohio State football. Um, incredible. But, By the way, he's wearing gold pants with those cocaine whites around his neck. <laughs> he's got he's got That's his right. gold pants there, and and on the Sports Illustrated cover after they beat Michigan 42 to 41. The, he's he's got a semi Heisman pose in the cocaine whites, yep. and if you look at his neck, you can see the gold pants. <laughs> That's right, you can. And the other thing about Braxton, if you remember, like he he always had special shoes, so his shoes were pure white in that fun game. zone. Like they had fun zone on them. Yeah, it's incredible. Like the that type of the, the detail he had in the uniform. But anyway, because they lose the next week to Michigan State, and because then they play Clemson, and then he gets hurt, and then he plays receiver, and he doesn't get to play his senior year. I think he's kind of lost, but. I don't know that any Ohio State player, and my hyperbole is out of control tonight. I'm, I apologize. It's been a long day. So I don't know that any Ohio State player more has been put on his shoulders than him from, from 2012 to the, the three years he was the quarterback, uh, 2011, really, and then 12, certainly, when they basically he was the offense until Carlos started going as the season went along. Um, but he was just pure electric. He's a two time Big Ten player of the year. And I don't know that he is, I don't know if he'll ever be revered or remembered for what he was. The you know when you talk about like a musician's musician or an yeah. actor's actor, I think Braxton sure. Miller uh, is a sports writer's football player. He is. <laughs> I, I, I wrote more Hoffman of. Uh, he is of his, his reward for saving Ohio State from itself was that Ohio State forgot they had him in 2015. Yeah, and the the runner up to what you're saying, Bo. What what player has put more on his shoulders? Than Braxton Miller, the runner-up is the guy that preceded him, Terrell Pryor, the king of third and nine, where well, I, I, who right. knows what they were trying to do offensively during the the, the late you know, Bowman, Tressel, uh, Siciliano years. Uh, but it got to third and nine, he would be like, you know what, I, I got to get 10 yards, and he would do it. And yeah, Braxton and the, Miller and stepped into that. And neither one of those guys played their senior year. Um, it would be foolish uh, if I had you on and we didn't talk whiskey. Okay. And um, I would say that uh, – you you certainly I would say um between the two of us, boy do we we tend to do it a lot on the social. I do it far more than you now because I'm trying to make some money off of it. But frankly, <laughs> but, but but nevertheless, it's um it it is something that I enjoy a great deal. And one thing that people ask me because obviously whiskey's become very in vogue in the last. It's really been about six, seven, eight years. It's been for a long time, unless you're Justin Timberlake and then you just discovered it six months ago. Um, in Montana, classic Montana. Dude, I'm whiskey. from Montana. That was that the most. <laughs> unbelievable quote of all time for, for anyone who that, whiskey, it, it's unbelievable like blanton's <laughs> he, he has this what? album called man of the woods and he does an interview and they're asking him about montana and he's from what memphis like he doesn't know yeah montana. and he's, he's at the yellowstone him. club which is this ritzy place like tom brady's <laughs> out there in montana and so real that's rustic. where he is yeah real real yeah. man of the woods stuff and he's asked about whiskey and he's like right. i like a montana whiskey like blanton's which if, if our listeners right now don't know about blanton's oh. Blanton's is a classic Kentucky whiskey. It's so Kentucky that the cork is Kentucky Derby horses and jockeys. You can't. <laughs> you, you literally couldn't Blanton. get more Kentucky. How can you get Montana out of opening that? Like, oh, clearly Montana, the, the famous Montana Derby. Oh, it just <laughs> infuriates. So, what is um? It, this is. I remember even emailing you about this like ten years ago, before you know, before there was you know widespread. But I remember just like you know. Because I, I really got started in bourbon with blends. 
And uh, I was a scotch drinker up until I moved to Florida in 2001 or two, somewhere in there. And I, I drink scotch up. At the, so I drink Johnny Walker Black and, and that was it. And then when I moved to the South, people started drinking, people drink bourbon. And um, a buddy of mine goes, you got to try it. My experience with bourbon to that point was Jim Beam or Wild Turkey. And it was in a shot. You know, I didn't drink it. And um, a buddy goes, you ought to try this blends. And I had it. And I went, that's, that's heaven. I don't know. I don't know what that is, but I like it now. And the thing about Blanton's that nobody realizes now is it used to be like Johnny Walker Black. It was in every liquor store that you went to. Right. It was there. And now it's a ghost. And so many of them have become ghosts that I'm, it's hard. And I, I used to think it was kind of fun to like go on the bourbon hunt. Now I'm just annoyed by it because there just isn't enough supply to meet the demand. When did you first get into it? And how have you handled the last five or six years where it's just really hard to get anything at an MSRP? I mean, you, everything you can get black market if you want it, but um, the MSRP is almost impossible to track down the stuff that I used to drink anyway. Right. And you're, you're in Ohio. Um, I'm, you know, I'm New Jersey. I'm, I'm close to a major port. It's a little bit easier for me on the Good. MSRP. Yeah. Um, but yeah. my, my bourbon journey is, uh, it's, it's unconventional. So I'll try to abbreviate it because it could take all, all broadcast. I, I had a job I should not have had, uh, working in technology and try, I had to look older than I was. Okay. And, uh, I'm in my early twenties. I'm, I'm knocking down like keystone lights. If I'm going to a business <laughs> dinner, <laughs> I, can't, I can't look like I just finished drinking Meister Chow and pre-gaming with a shower beer. <laughs> so, so I, I'm like, you know, I have to commit, I have to commit myself to, to adult liquor, to adult drinks. And I started learning about, uh, the Highland Scotch, Lowland Scotch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did the little tour of Scotland, uh, went up there, started to understand what was peatier, what, where, where you would, where you would drink a scotch situationally, even though I didn't refer to liquor in terms of uh, when it was appropriate and when it was inappropriate. So I became a scotch guy by 25. Uh, you talked about drinking Johnny Walker Black. I gave Johnny Walker Black to my friends. I saved uh, Lagouvel and like better stuff for myself. And yeah. then, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't need to, to to have that vanity and say, hey, well, look at this fancy scotch I'm drinking because my friends are all still drinking Keystone Light. Right. So right. Fast forward, I'm, I, used, I worked for Johnson & Johnson for 14 years. I had just gotten the state of Kentucky under my, uh, in my obligations. And I'm now old enough where I don't have to pretend I'm too old, but I'm still not that old. I was like 30. Um, mm-hmm. I'm 44 now. I, I go out to dinner at, at a great restaurant in the, in the Highlands, ironically, of, <laughs> of Louisville, not of, of Scotland. And yeah. <laughs> uh, it's me and three like country boy doctors. And I'm this guy who just moved from Chicago, kind of overdressed for the for the restaurant. We finish a, a fantastic meal at this place called Jack Fry's, and um, our server comes up and asks, you know, for a post meal drink order. And I try to impress these guys. I, I saw a scotch on their menu that I think was decent enough, and I ordered it. And <laughs> this guy, this uh, this infectious disease doc, puts his hand up without saying anything, kind of over my face, but not touching my face, just kind of blocking mm-hmm. my face from the server. <laughs> And tells tells the the waiter, you know, we're we're gonna need a moment. And so the, the the server leaves. I'm sitting there with three docs. I'm like, was it something I said? And another doc, not the one that put the hand in my face, looks at me and goes, "Boy, you just ordered a Pepsi in Atlanta." <laughs> <laughs> That's a great line. And I'm so at that point, I'm like, what? teach me. And I, I walked them through a, a brief, less embarrassing version of the story I just told you about, you know, selling yeah. and technology and looking older. Uh, my first real chewing up of bourbon, my first foray into it was that evening at Jack Fry's. And it, it was uh, Pappy 12, 15, 20, and 23. 
Okay. So those are I, the this first is four. A, <laughs> yeah, that's that's not really a boy. That's like that's like getting your learner's permit to drive, and somebody hands you a Ferrari California. I, I mean, didn't know what I was pretty, doing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I, I I didn't appreciate. I knew it was it was delightful because I had its Scotch palate, so they prepared yeah. me that it's going to be sweeter. A month later, I'm at Julian Van Winkle's house in the East End, uh, getting a bottle from him. And this is this is in the 2000s. I mean, uh, urban. This is before it goes nuts. Like at that point, you could get it at restaurants. You could get it occasionally at liquor stores. Like it was around. It wasn't ghost. You know, Um, I learned to dress down my palate and not. And that's where situational bourbon came from. You don't put Pappy in a Boda bag and go to your kid's soccer game. Yeah. (laughs) You know, your best friend has to get married or you have to have a kid. Um but the 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 whole idea that you have to only drink good bourbon comes from a place of ignorance where it's, it's you're driven by vanity and it's frankly a, a bit of a dick measuring contest and that's what's happened with bourbon tourists who come and drive the scarcity uh, into oblivion mm-hmm. and now you can't get a bottle of of Pappy fifteen for under a grand uh, and that's no, that's it, a good deal. that's the part that pisses me off because my favorite my favorite bourbon is Elmer T Lee and. Elmer T. Lee was available everywhere for $28 mm-hmm. everywhere. I mean, is it in every liquor store in Ohio? I could get it. And I haven't seen it on the shelf in Ohio in three and a half years. I mean, unless you know somebody, you can't get it. And this, you know, so when you like, when you talk about like dick measuring, this was an everyday bourbon. This was something anybody could get. And it was under $30. And I still think it holds up to damn near anything I've ever had. But I can't get it anymore. So that, and I don't know if it's different for you. I'm sure it is. I mean, you got you're near Manhattan, you're in New York, all those things, and these to your point ports. But um, that's been frustrating to me because these aren't, you know, that and Eagle Rare. Like those are the everyday bourbons I used to drink for years, and now you can't even get them here anymore. Eagle Rare is still pretty easy to find out here. Elmer is is tough. I uh, Elmer Lee Elmer Tilly died, I think, five years ago. I remember when he, he passed did. away. I went out and got a bottle of of Elmer and you know drank to him that night. I I yeah. have a bottle of commemorative Elmer in my bar right so now. So do I. So do I with the 93 proof. Yeah. Um yeah, I have that the, too. I I mean well, all all black market for bourbon. I I don't ha- I don't golf. I don't have any hobbies outside of 11 Warriors. Yeah. I work and you know pay for the people in my house. My my one indulgence outside of you know recreational travel is brown liquor. So I'll pay for yeah. it. Yeah. So let me ask you guys thinks- this: If if someone's trying to get into bourbon whiskey and and whatnot, what what's a good introductory uh, brand for them to to pick up? So, so you I, have the, you have the, a much more scientific answer to this than I do. So I'll let you yeah. go first. The yeah, but Bo, Bo will have a better answer than I, my, mine's far more pragmatic. Bose is going to be awesome. Um, no, the, it won't be. <laughs> well, for for me, it's not about like I don't want you to drink what I think is good. I think. Well, hang, yeah. hang on. Let me right. let, let let me preface that. Let me let me start off this real quick though by telling you my experience real real briefly. Okay, That's and awesome. this is yeah, this was whiskey. So when I was living in Japan, um, uh, what would you what would you first of all what would you categorize Four Roses as? It's solid, a, a worthy blue chip bourbon that you can okay. find. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So and and that's and that's what it's we were single hoping. barrel so, and then small batch. In that all right. Order. So yeah. there you go. So good. when I was living in Japan, um, uh, some friends of mine, we you know we were celebrating God knows what I don't even remember, but we went to the the local kind of liquor store, which functions pretty much the same way as it does in the United States, at least as far as where I was living. And we were just looking for something that looked decent and wasn't just complete garbage. Um, 
but we were going to treat it like complete garbage because we spent the next like maybe six hours just like taking shots out of a four roses bottle while we played Mega Man and got trashed. <laughs> and and then we woke up, we woke up the next day, completely hungover and went to McDonald's and that was it. And that's and that's like basically my like introduction to this wonderful drink because i drink i drink you know when i go out and have, we have a nice dinner i love whiskey or bourbon but i have no idea what i'm ordering i'll just pick something and that's always been the way i've consumed it and i don't want to because i genuinely enjoy it and i i don't want to treat it like it's just something to to consume you know i, I want to try to become more of an enjoyer of this so that's that's where i'm starting from that's my starting point on this let me do this then, because I think I know I've I've asked Ramsey his answer before, and um, because he and I have had this conversation, I think via social media. But I, I'll just tell you because mine is a more rudimentary, like just tell you if you like the fl the flavor at all. Sure. I tell people go to a bar if you like. As so many people now want to do it, right? I get so many people. What should I do? What should I order? What should I get? And I tell all the because they all drink, you know, clear alcohols for rich women on diets, and they all drink vodka nonsense. And I'll say, listen, don't waste your time with that. Like, if you're going to drink, enjoy it. So I tell them to get, and it's not a bourbon, it's a rye, but I tell them to get a bullet rye old-fashioned. And I say, order one of those. And if you, if that is something that you can kind of get behind, then that will open the door for what Ramsey's going to tell you, in my opinion. If you can, if you like a good old-fashioned made correctly, and I think bullet rye is one that's at every bar in the world, uh, you know what they have it. They'll, uh, any good bartender knows how to make an old-fashioned. Um Go there, order that, and and if you like the flavor of that, then that can lead you down this road that Ramsey's going to describe. That's that would be that's the advice that I give the kids when they ask me. It's much cooler advice. <laughs> I mean, unless, I don't know if unless, it is, but I mean, I think like, it's like at least an entry point into okay, this is something I can get behind, you know? Yeah. The I think the watch out would be, and it's palate related, and it's and this is where where I, I'm going to be going. Um, if you have a strong sensitivity to bitter, and you have an old fashioned you're probably not going to taste the rye because the bitters the, 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 that are put into it are going to yeah. overwhelm you. But True. if you have like, I don't want to say, I don't want to say anything's normal, but if you, if you can taste everything, then which is probably the majority of the population, that's a much fun, more fun voyage on a bourbon or a whiskey exp exploration than, than what I'm about to tell you. Mine's a lot more like, I'm not a scientific guy, but this is like the most scientific thing that I do is, directing people on how to find the right bourbon for them. It's not about what you No, pay. no, this is Mozart describing how to make music. I've heard you do this before, and that's what this is. Let's not undersell it. <laughs> oh, man, it's, I'm fanning myself. For, that, that's, that's a high praise. <laughs> no, it's, it's really well thought out, because I've passed this advice that you're about to give off as my own many times. So oh, by, it's by all means. It's, oh, it's, my God, tell it. Damn it, let's go. It's, it's the people's advice. But can we draw this out longer so that we can... No, I'll just, I'll just talk. Yeah. So, so the first thing you need to understand is that bourbon is always fifty-one percent corn. If you're looking at a bar full of of bourbons, every single one of those was in a barrel at one point that was charred English oak, and it, the mash bill, which is basically what the juice that went into it back when it was first conceived, was fifty-one percent corn. The other forty-nine percent is a mixture of other stuff. And so, finding out what bourbon you like isn't about like if you like fifty-one percent corn because that's equilibrium. It's finding about what other elements of the mash bill are that you enjoy. So I always consider, you know, find three first shelf bourbons that have wildly different uh, mash bills. And the ones that I give people are Basil Hayden's, which you can find anywhere. Maker's Mark, which I cannot personally drink because it makes me feel like I have a brain tumor. And Wild Turkey. Yeah, me too. 
um, Maker's just crushes my head for some reason. So I, I mean, it, unfortunately, yeah. it's it's tasty and ubiquitous, and I can't touch it. But basil, Maker's, and turkey. So you, if you go to a bar like like Bo's Exercise, if you don't actually get get your get your bullet rye old fashioned first, so it will wet the palate, and then you know get a shot of basil, a shot of Maker's, and a shot of wild turkey, and and make sure that you have Uber installed on your phone. Then just chew up each one. Um, and, and decide which one you like most. You just spent $15 or $5 drinks in central yeah. Ohio. Um, and, and just make, maybe get a potato chip or some bar snacks in between and decide which one you like. And depending on which one you like, go on the internet, put in the name of that bourbon, if it's basil and, and type in mash bill. And then you'll see, you know, what, what it's constructed of. And now look for similar mash bills. And those are the bourbons you want to go down. I like weeded bourbons. Uh, Pappy Van Winkle is a weeded bourbon. Larceny is a weeded bourbon. You can start to, Weller is a, is a weeded bourbon. You, you start to go through the different families of the bourbon tree uh, based on what that other 49% is. So that's a very methodical way to find what you like. I like the whole tree. Um, I don't like pretend bourbon. Like Kentucky Gentleman is is basically vodka with shoe polish to make it look brown. Uh, that's that's not <laughs> That's not genuine. Like it wouldn't pass the bonding test. Uh, for for being legitimate bourbon, but start if you're a beginner with where your mouth wants to go for that 49%, and then don't waste your money on stuff that you don't like. Just find out what your palate is into. Yeah, and what's happened is, is so many people want they want to have that the status thing. They don't even know what the hell they're buying, mm -mm, right. um, and that's why what's ha basically what's happened with all the Buffalo Trace products, which is why we don't have it in Ohio anymore, is people can't get pappy, and so they just buy the other Buffalo Trace product. And right. so, I mean, it's a, the whole line is a ghost, uh, in Ohio. I mean, mm -hmm. all of it, even the entry level, the, just the Buffalo trace, you know, 24 bucks. That's a ghost. I mean, none of them exist in Ohio. So it's a, we're in a tough, we're in a really hard spot. And the Ohio liquor liquor, uh, commission is, is really, um, uh, cracking down even more so in the last six months. And there were guys I know, uh, I won't give names, but guys I know who, Took, went to a great deal of care to procuring incredible bourbon selections in their liquor stores. And the state of Ohio came in and said, no, no, you're not going to have anything that nobody else has. And they, they're, they're giving it to everybody. So it's a, it's, it's going to get harder and harder, you know, in Ohio to find, you know, this for me, at least the stuff that I used to drink, because I, you know, those, it was, I drank, you know, my favorites were always, you know, uh, Pappy's awesome, obviously, but I mean, it's been a ghost forever. Um, so it was always Blanton's. It was Eagle. It was Eagle rare. And it was Elmer T. Lee. Those are the three that I always had around. They were always, and now you really can't see any of them. Oh man. I love Ohio, but yeah. that's, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. It's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. So, you know, we could have done, we could do an hour on just that. <laughs> oh, yeah. We just, we just barely got into it. What is your, am, what's your uh, house bourbon? I know you have a million, but I mean, what would be the, what's the one that you, that you go to on a, on the reg, if you will, if you're Kenny Powers. Oh, I don't, I don't have a regular one, but I'm it's, it's Tuesday night and I'm writing cause I publish on Wednesdays. And tonight it's Old Forester 1920 because yep. uh, it had been a week and a half since I had Old Forester 1920. So I, I love I love Old Foe. Old Foe and I will go to war. I'll go to war mm -hmm. with Old Foe anytime. Um, I'm in several bourbon clubs, so I do a lot of spot random uh, tasting. I was in Europe a couple of weeks ago, and um, that's a good place to get Japanese uh, liquor on the cheap. Uh, so I got a couple of Japanese whiskeys that I like to you know, sample, but... Uh, in terms of regular, in terms of favorite, man, that's that's why I go with situational. It's it yeah, depends, depends on, on where you're at the week and, and what you're celebrating or what you're mourning. Um, I mean, if if I had to go and aggregate the the one 
that I've had the most of in the last year, it's probably Widow Jane, which is I'm from- interested to hear you say that because I've heard mixed on that. Yeah, I, I started out as as not a fan. I don't know if it was inconsistent batches or what, but it's made in quote unquote Brooklyn. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's <laughs> marketing. I, I think it's finished somewhere else, kind of like how Bullets finished in you know Lawrenceburg, <laughs> Indiana or whatever. But yeah. uh, Widow Jane has the last few bottles I've had have just been exceptional. And I, I grade bourbon not just on you know how it hits your mouth and how it makes you feel, but the stories you tell and the the ambient energy around you when you're sharing whiskey with either new neighbors or old friends um it changes how it tastes and widow jane has treated me well for the last year they're not paying me a dime to say that i should probably change yeah right best one what's your favorite the favorite special occasion is what oh the the alt like if i had to choose one bourbon on the you know the the pinnacle day of days um it it would be pappy van winkle uh 20 uh 23 is a little bit too tight you can't taste all of it 20 is just saying, Johnny, 20 is the same as 23. It's just open the barrels open three years later, and the right. volume of liquid is much lower. Uh, gotcha. The angel's share has disappeared, and as a result, you've got something that's wound really tight. But cool. it, Pappy 20 is a perfect bourbon. That's what I say. When people ask me, and I, I don't like saying it just because I know no one can get it, but I but if they ask, that's what I say. I mean, it's just uh, it's one of the few things that I've had. Now, I wasn't like you. I had it, it wasn't the first bourbon I had, but when I finally did get my hands on it, um, and it's, it's something that the first time I poured it, it was different than anything else, um, anything else I've ever tasted. And then what's amazing about it is you just let it breathe a little bit and it just opens up and it really is as good as advertised. It's one of those things in life that is as good as advertised. Yeah. And let me ask you guys this, cause this is the way I've been drinking whiskey and, and bourbon pretty much ever since I started doing it. But like, I just, I just have it neat. Like that's it. Like I don't put any ice, nothing. I just. I don't know if that's the correct way. I don't know. I don't There's know. No how to, I don't way, know if man. I'm, I'm the know. way you like, it's the correct way. I think, I mean, okay. I don't, you know, I'll agree. Um, I, I would say that if you're drinking a, a, an upper tier bourbon, um, you would be robbing yourself of an experience. If you like dumped a diet, Dr. Pepper into it. Oh gosh. <laughs> no, I don't do mixers. I don't yeah. do mixers. I don't do that. I mean, no, I don't mix. I yeah, don't believe in mixers. I don't believe it. Artif- no, 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 no. But I mean, like if you want to put a big rock in, Go, go forth. Yeah. Some, some people do it for temperature. I will drink it neat like you, Johnny. If it yeah. is an older vintage or uh, just a high octane bourbon, I might put in one. I, I, I'm kind of an ice snob. I don't want to get that orange wedge shaped uh, cube that's kind of no. damaged out of your, your fridge. I, I like having a nice square with rough edges or that has no bubbles in it, dropping it in the middle and allowing that to open up the bourbon so I can taste more of it. Um, yeah. But that it's if someone tells you there's a right or wrong way and what to do with ice, man, you don't know what their mouth tastes like, what their palate uh, responds to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I mean, I've always because I always I don't I don't like it diluted, and so I, I just you know I don't I'm not chugging it. So you know, towards the end of the drink, I always felt like I was kind of getting cheated a little bit. So I always just have it just neat. So the problem is mine never gets diluted. I drink it too damn. I mean, <laughs> it goes too quick. It's, it never gets a chance to dilute. Um, yeah, this is hey buddy. This is fascinating. I've always wanted to talk whiskey with you. And um, I, like I said, we could do another half hour, 45 minutes pretty easily, I'm sure. But um, mm-hmm. I, I suppose we should let the people go. But this this has been uh, it's been fun to talk it with you. And I, uh, I I love the advice you give is is fantastic on on the kids because I get that. I know you get it all the time. I cannot tell you guys how many times whether somebody comes up to me in a store or certainly on social media, it's out of control, but people will, Hey, 
that's my brother's birthday. What should I get him? Yeah. And I, in fact, I gave, uh, because I remember you saying you liked Widow Jane and I, I, I told a kid who was in Chicago who can get it. We can't get it in Ohio. Um, but I told a kid who was in Chicago, I said, you know, this guy I know who really knows what he's talking about on whiskey. He says, this is pretty solid and it's, you know, it's thought of pretty well. I, you know, I, I gave that as a, a recommendation, but I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what this guy's mouth's all about. Like you have no idea. So it's a, it's a tricky spot. And so that's what I, to me, order an old fashioned. If you like, if that is something that you can get behind, then that can lead to other things. So I think, our, you know, the thing we laid out would work. Like if you order an old fashioned, then you do what you said and you get the three shots and you do it that way. You'll have a pretty, first of all, you can feel real good after that. But second of all, uh, you, you would know what you liked. You, you, you're going to know if you like it or not. I mean, that's a, right. that's a pretty good entry into it for the kids. Right. And so, you know, Bo, uh, I think off the top of my head, I think Widow Jane is 85% corn and it's all grown in New York. And then the rest is, there's no rye in it at all. It's just barley. Really? I went on the tour. Huh. Yeah. It's, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, and, and the, the distilleries in Brooklyn? That's what they say. I mean, I go to tastings. I don't. I don't go on tours as much as when you know. When I was in Kentucky, I'd go on the trail. But um, yeah, if, if you say you're from Brooklyn, I think you can add another 20 percent onto the price, just because now you're you're cooler. Brooklyn's <laughs> so cool, isn't it? Apparently, I don't know. I guess it is. It must be. Uh, all right, buddy. Excellent stuff. Uh, don't be a stranger. I, I enjoy talking to you on all sorts of things, especially this stuff. So uh, good stuff out of you, pal, and we appreciate you hopping on. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, thanks, guys. All right, and that's our show for this week. We thank Ramsey for dropping by and talking uh, a little bit of nostalgia and also a lot of whiskey, which, you know, frankly, we like. And uh, we'll be back next week with more fun. All right, pal, we'll talk to you next week. Yep, see you then.